0: A warm welcome to the Creative Places and Faces podcast, the podcast that explores places that help to inspire creativity. Some are local, some even formative, and others are far away and sometimes rather exotic. I'm Mike Payne, one of the Creative Places and Faces team. Let me introduce you to your host, Jackie DeBurca. Jackie is originally from Dublin, Ireland, but has spent a lot of time abroad, especially in Spain. She is the author of Salvador Dali at Home, creator of Travel Inspires, and the number one travel and tourism influencer, Q2 2020, according to Global Data. Over to you, Jackie.
1: So let's welcome back Maliki O'Doherty. We've been chatting about all sorts so far today, and in this episode, we're going to talk about Maliki's time in India, amongst many other things. Going back to Donegal, uh, Maliki, you... You said uh, in our sort of preparation for today's chat, you said, I always had a sense that it was an ancestral homeland. It seemed a place where law was less rigorous, where one might be settled in one's life without the pressure to accumulate or progress in a career. How do you feel about that now, given what we've just been chatting about?
2: Well, I suppose, uh, you know, there's something of the, the... I mean that is what we've been chatting about in that easy going way, you know, seems to me to be more Donegal than, than Belfast. Yeah. But I mean, we're leaving yeah. out my mother's lineage and and uh, William O'Halloran and the Navy and everything. So I don't know how that fits into it. And and uh, maybe even physically, I look more like like that side of the family. I'm I'm not sure, but still, yes, uh, the there was also the thing that when you even go back to the 1950s and we day trips to Donegal. You had some a sense of just kind of breathing more easily when you're over the border, you know. Okay. And why was yeah. that? Partly it was to do with, I don't know. Partly it was to do with the stuff you had in your head about the awful north and about it being our land that was stolen from us. The old, the old mythology. Yeah. But it was also something to do with the the general untidiness of it, you know, it was, you know, it was the the paint peeling off the the shops, you know, the rougher roads. I mean, it's not like that now, but it was then you were definitely, you know, you had a sense uh, of moving from uh, a prosperous or at least well ordered uh, country. Uh-huh. crossing a yeah. line into somewhere, which was just more a peasant society or more slapdash or or less, you know. And and within that, there was also, and this was part of our experience, it was simply true, that um, there wasn't the same bother about the pubs closing in time. You know, in my teen uh-huh. years, I would be working in bars occasionally in Belfast and working with my dad. And there was that thing, it hit 10 o'clock and it was time, gentlemen, please. You know, whereas you would go into a hotel in Port Salon or Rita's or some place like that, you know, and you have a drink and you sit down, and nobody's precisely asking you what your age is, and and <laughs> and closing time just seems an optional theory, you know. Um, yeah. That's that's how it was then. So so all of that that sense that the represented um, uh, a laxity or a, a hmm. flexibility in the rules, you know. That yeah. there was just a, there was this part of your uh, your life or part of your hinterland, uh, where, where that you could retreat to, you where you knew that the the sternness of the north, you know, didn't apply, and uh, yeah. you know, you know, I mean, I don't know what it's like now. I mean, I've uh, you know, it, it may be that you couldn't now drive a car. Across Donegal without number of plates, you know, but you know, <laughs> there was a time when you could, you know, and uh, you know, and be drunk as well, you know. um, yeah. <laughs> um I'm sure. I'm sure, it's all it's all better now. And and the other thing is, of course, if you cross the border into Donegal now, uh, you're crossing onto better roads than you're leaving behind you, you know. Mm. Uh, okay. So that that's changed. But still, in all, you know, there's something about crossing the border, leaving the police barrier, the customs man behind you, the the fantasy mm. that you were smuggling. You know, you weren't smuggling at all. The customs guy man just sat in his, uh, in his, <laughs> chair, in his chair and waved you on. You know, and yeah. uh, I'll tell you a story. I was, um, it was the day of my father's brother's funeral, and uh-huh. so we were driving down to Dublin, so we we're going over the border into Dundalk, mm-hmm. that way, right? And yeah. my father was in the car and he said, uh, God, I remember that pub there. I remember the time I uh, would stop there and your mother and I had gone out for a drink, gone in for mm-hmm. a drink and would send you out some crisps and minerals and you're sitting in uh-huh. the car when who should come along with the guards? And the guard <coughs> said to your, your sister Anne, says, where's your mummy and daddy? And Anne said, they're in the pub. And the guard <laughs> said, Oh, well, that's all right then. And Barney told that story, and he says, no, that wouldn't happen today." No, <laughs> then, no, you know, not at all. You know that, that that was acceptable. The guards come along to check the the where your mom on six children sitting in yeah. a wee Austin six or something, uh, drinking <laughs> Fanta's and uh, and eating their cheese and onion crisps, and no no adult anywhere near. And, mm. and says, well, where's your mum and dad? Oh, they're in the
1: pub. Oh, well, that's all right. That's great. So. That's grand. Yeah, that's grand. So with the, the huge difference between the feeling and the experience of going over the border to Donegal, you know, on visits uh, from Belfast, imagine, Malachy, if things had been different and your dad didn't need to go to Belfast uh, to earn more money,
2: mm.
1: how do you think your life would have been different if you'd stayed in Donegal all that time? Well, that's a
2: good question. I mean, I just don't know. I mean, the other question is how would it have been different if it hadn't been for the Troubles, you know? Because the Troubles also became such a focus of my journalism. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think... um, I think I... I mean, what I wanted uh, was to be a writer and to write stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I wanted this before I had stories to write. uh, But I had that inclination, you know? Um and uh, you know conceivably I would have lived in a in Muff, grown up in Muff, maybe mm-hmm. joined a local amateur dramatic society or something, maybe got a job as a barman, or maybe gone to the tech letter Kenny and and got a trade, or 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 maybe got a job in a local paper, you know, and uh, and uh, you know being a being a reporter in Donegal in the local newspaper, um. You know, everywhere has its journalists or, you know, or maybe I would have. uh, um, I mean, here I'm going to say something I shouldn't say, but I have a strong religious bent, you know, which worries Mm -hmm. me, you know, and has worried at me uh, throughout my life. And, uh, (laughs) you know, and uh, when I was in my mid-teens, I wanted to be a priest. and I mean, it was my Mm -hmm. father basically stood in the way of that and said, you're not going. If you still want to go next year, you can go, uh, but you're not going. (laughs) And, uh, okay. and that was, and he was right to do that, you know, but then again, I went to India and I lived in an ashram in India and that religious bent came up again. So, I mean, mm-hmm. in some ways, if I was, if as a writer, I had not been, uh, distracted maybe is the word or led into that whole kind of discussion around politics and the troubles, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that maybe then that whole kind of, uh, uh, worrying about the cosmos and our place in it and whether or not there's a, a, a spiritual side to life or, you know, maybe all of that would have uh, would have taken up more space and, and I would have
1: written more about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And when you originally uh, relocated to Belfast, how are your earlier memories in contrast to sort of the more... A uh, simple lifestyle that you would have been leading up until the age of five, or do you even have strong memories of that time, Maliki?
2: I started school in Belfast in the Pavilion of Casement Park uh, Football Club, right, the GAA club. No, that there wasn't a Catholic school built for us yet, um, and obviously we were Catholics and we were going to go to a Catholic school and and, and not to a state school. Um, not that I'd any say, on the matter. Uh, so we were sent to classrooms that were improvised in this stinking uh, pavilion, you know. And I can still smell the, the damp concrete and the, and and the sawdust that was put down over vomit and stuff. And uh, and uh, and I and the the horrible image. And you see, I'd come from a family with two girls. Uh, and a mother, so it was, it was mostly, it was a half female, half, half of the sky was female where I came from. And, 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 you know, and in the school that I'd been in Valley Castle, it'd been a mixed school. And then suddenly I'm in an all boys class and you're standing at a urinal in a stinking football pavilion with 20 boys all pissing together, you know, and, and threatening to piss on each other, you know. And I was totally, um, uh, appalled by the whole thing you know um so so uh, you know I, I I mean I don't have very strong memories of caseman Park and and the and the teachers there uh but I you know but later going to the main primary school which was the Holy child I remember you know I mean when you' are in it you accept it as the norm it's you know it's when you're years later you look back and you remember a teacher, uh flogging a boy with a cane uh because he had run away from home to find his daddy, you know? And you think, how in under God did that happen, you know? Uh, you know, and um and I mean I, I got six slaps for my bad handwriting. I was slapping me in my hand supposed to improve my handwriting, you know? I mean, who were these idiots? You know, so but 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 I tell these stories to people of my generation who were there and they haven't done the reevaluation. They haven't kind of, you know, they still look up to these people who did that, you know, and say, Oh, you, you, you know, I remember talking to one of the lads, uh, you know, just a year ago. I hadn't met him for years. And then we met up in London and we had a chat and a talk and he was great meeting him, uh, you know, but he, that's, you know, he would say, Oh, the one thing about your man was he was always fair. He didn't slap you unless you deserved it. And I'm thinking, if you had an eight year old child came home from school and said they'd been beaten with a cane. What would you do? You'd 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 go in and you'd be up at the school. And yet there were parents who did that. I remember sitting in class one day and the teacher goes to the door and suddenly this handbag comes flying through the gap between the door and the wall and you know, in an attempt to cleave him and this woman shouting at him, you lay a hand on my child again, you know you know and and it's all been really embarrassed you know that this woman had let herself down so badly but actually she was the one who was responding logically to the situation, not us uh, I don't know that I'm not left-handed. Um, I, you know, I've heard stories like that, but I'm not aware that anyone close to me was being forced to write with a right hand. I mean, I, I, I can specifically remember a teacher, you know, uh, helping a boy who was left-handed. You know, because there's the, the because being left being right-handed suits the way we write from uh, left to right across a page. You know, whereas you will see somebody writing the left hand, their, their arm seems to. Arch right round, you know, to 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 draw the pencil in a funny way. So I, I, you know, so I don't know, no. I mean, we had we had violent teachers and we had very good teachers, you know. Um, one there was one teacher, Brother Walsh, and uh, you know he was he was a good humoured man who very rarely used the strap, uh, and uh, he had a playful nature, and he made us write a comp- composition, as it was called, an essay composition every every weekend you know in life, like from the age of of eleven, you know you're writing these compositions. but you could let off, always get let off if it was your birthday. Um, and some of us had four or five birthdays in the year <laughs> but uh, but but you know I wonder you know uh, you know I, you know that every Sunday evening uh, you know of 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 my early teenage and teenage years, was spent at the Christian Christmas table, uh, sorry, at the kitchen table, uh, writing a composition for Willie Walsh. I mean that must have that must have been a big contribution to my ability to write uh, in later years. You know, for publication, it must have been. I mean, if you hadn't had that, if I hadn't done that, you know, uh, how much catch up would I have had to do on just learning to write? You know, um, and now I write. And throughout you know, for the last thirty, forty years I've been writing a thousand words a day, you know. Uh, you know, it's a it's a normal thing. Um so that that was a bit I suppose like for some some boys would have got good, good physical training and gone out running, you know, and would have achieved a level of fitness through that. And I think with with writing all the time at school and after that that gives a, a fitness to the uh, generation of language in the brain, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't remember any of them. I don't even know where these things are, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, but I do, but I do remember. And, and I remember, and it's a funny thing to stick in your mind, but I remember once sitting right in a composition and getting stuck after about 200 words and having nothing to say and leaving it and then getting a flash of an idea of something else to say that would dovetail with what I'd done and I and that was like an epiphany that was like oh that's how it works that's how you can do it you know you don't have to stay on this straight line you can you can bring in ideas you know you can take another idea that you hadn't previously thought of as being related to the subject and you can twist it and fit it you know and I thought, God, that's, you know, I never thought of that, you know, and, 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 you know, and then I went back and, and finished this, this, this composition. I have no idea what the subject was, but I, it was just that kind of sudden realization that this trick of writing a story or writing an essay um, allowed, you know, that you could pull something in from the side that, that hadn't been there in your original conception. And you could, he would work that in and, uh, and it felt like cheating, you know, it felt like, like trickery, but, uh, but, it, but it's, it's creativity. But I also remember, I also remember other teachers, you know, I mean, I think we were given an essay to do in primary school and the theme, the story was lost in the fog or something. And I wrote a story about getting lost in the fog and it was handed back to me by the teacher with a four lettered word at the bottom. D-A-F-T. That was it. You know? You, know? So, 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 <laughs> you know? So you had to find your encouragement where you got it. You know, you weren't always going to get it from teachers. You know? <laughs> Brother Walsh, yeah, rather was yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We lived in a housing estate which was at the western edge of the city, so there was uh, no further development beyond us. Uh, so it was open fields around us. Um, so you could go and play in the fields and jump in the haystacks and stuff. There was building going on around, so there were new houses being built and new estates being built. So you could also go and play on building sites, and we did this, you know, <laughs> go and bounce on the planks and stuff. Um, the uh, the neighborhood was, I suppose, I mean, I. I would imagine, I mean, I'm thinking back to, say, 1964 or something, in a street with about 65 houses in it and maybe four cars in the street. I think that was probably normal at that time. Um, And uh, there were at least four or five of our near neighbours were policemen uh, who cycled to work at Dunmurray Police Station. Um, And, you know, we knew them and we knew their families um we we there were protestants there who went to other schools and they played with us and they were Protestant friends but there was also a kind of thing you know if your mother caught you asking a Protestant friend about um, about something related to protestantism or something you'd get told off for that you know that was bad manners you just you know you know that's you know you have no right to be asking that just you, you behave treat them as well, more you know i mean so you know, there, there there, was that, you know, that sense that the Protestants uh, lived uh, a different life, went to different schools, uh, were cleaner. <laughs> you know, I mean, my mother used to comb my hair at the kitchen sink and then she'd say, there, now you're a wee bit more Protestant looking now. You know, so there was there was a consciousness of, of two communities, you know, and uh, there was also, if you like, a, a theology within Catholicism that you were getting at school. Uh, up to that point, about being part of the one true faith you know um there were there were teachers who would have told you the Protestants went to hell, you know now that was changing because the second Vatican council was coming in so so that was changing at that time but um but still no all that was there but um but there was no fear there were there were residual traces of the previous troubles, which really only ended in sixty two so there was, you know, there were posters, I've never seen a poster up in a tree saying free political prisoners and asking my mother about that. And she says, oh, that's nonsense. That's all that. There's no political prisoner. You know, that would have been her attitude, whereas my father would have been more Republican minded. And then uh, we all got chemistry sets for Christmas one year and started making gunpowder. And we, you know, that's true. And and I would, we, I was making gunpowder and and making these fireworks and lighting them on the street. And uh, there were boys come over to me and saying, "That's not how you do it at all," you know. And and these were boys from the Fianna, you know. And uh, you know, and they were saying, "What do you do you use weed killer and sugar," you know, and. And 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 you could go into the chemist shop, you know. You could go into the 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 the, the chemist on the Andersonstown Road to buy your chemicals, chemicals for your chemistry set. So I used to go in a Saturday morning with three D and buy a couple of ounces or an ounce of uh, potassium permanganate or whatever, you know. So you could you could go into the shop and just ask for potassium chlorate, you know, and take it home and make a wee make a wee, It was never a bomb, you know, because you you know, but it but it was a firework, you know. Uh, mine always just flared and burnt, um, but, uh, but you kind of knew that there were boys around you and there were men around you, you know, who were still um, uh, connected to, uh, to the IRA or the FINA movement. Uh, you just didn't uh, talk to them about it, um, and there weren't that many of them. There were very few. Uh, we thought of ourselves as Republican. You know, we went on our day trip to Bunkrana, you know, uh, for a summer holiday, And when you were there, you would buy a wee tricolour pin and wear it in your lapel while you're in Donegal. But then as you approached the border, your dad would tell you to take it out and not to be... be, uh...
1: Obviously talking about your uh, first job in the Sunday News um, in Belfast and how you felt quite morally lost in Belfast at that time. And you were heading off on a summer trip um, to Amsterdam. Shall we pick up from there?
2: Yeah, I was uh, with my friend Dennis and uh, we were taking, it was the or the ordinary summer holiday from uh, from the job mm-hmm. and we ferry across to Hesham and uh, hitch, took a bus over to Lancaster to the M6 and then stuck our thumbs out to hitchhike. <laughs> and we turned down a couple of short lifts uh, and then got a lift with uh, two girls in a dormobile, mm-hmm. a motor caravan. And they said they were driving to Dover, but when we got to know each other better, they said they were going all the way to Amsterdam. So we all traveled to Amsterdam together and around Belgium and Holland in this motor caravan for two weeks, which Mm. was a terrific adventure, you know, and uh, just what I needed after uh, the stress of Belfast. And Mm -hmm. uh, when I got back, I basically, after some hesitation, packed in the job and went to live uh, near one of these girls with, with her okay. brother. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, it wasn't a relationship that lasted forever, but it lasted three years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, at the end of the three years, I went to India. Okay. Um, I was, I suppose I look back on it as a fairly young and immature person, you know, not even handling a relationship very well, but, Oof. uh, still in all, it was, uh, it was like a gift from the gods. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> so, you, know, God, you know, you know, here am I in Belfast. I'm, you know, uh, utterly exasperated, depressed, drinking too much, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not, en- you know, not enjoying life and worrying constantly about my own safety. And uh-huh. something just this little hand just reaches down from the sky, picks you up, and puts you in <laughs> another place and gives you a girlfriend. You know, it is the sort of thing. It's the sort of thing that inclines you towards magical thinking, you know. (laughs) And the same thing happened again three years later. At the time when the relationship was dying and Mm -hmm. I was, uh, you know, lost for uh, a clear idea of where I was going. Didn't have Mm -hmm. a job because I'd been out of journalism for three years then. And then I saw an ad in the Guardian personal column and Mm -hmm. it said retired author wanted to work in India with Swami. On <laughs> Bhagavad, uh, on commentary on Bhagavad Gita. And, then, yeah, and I, yeah. so I wrote a box number and got a call from this German guy and asked me when I could go to India to work with a Swami. And, uh-huh. and I went.
0: This episode of the Creative Places and Faces podcast is sponsored by Property Insurance Center. Property Insurance Center's sponsorship helps to support the local economy by promoting not only local writers, artists, and craftspeople, but also entities involved in travel. Tourism and hospitality. This first series of the Creative Places and Faces podcast has an exciting lineup of guests, including Jan Carson, Henry McDonald, Ann Smith, Malachi O'Doherty, Andrea Spencer, Helen Sharkey, Emma Thorpe, and many others. Today's sponsor, Property Insurance Center, specializes in commercial and residential property insurance and all types of business insurance. Originally established in 1976 this family insurance brokerage has served thousands of businesses and families just like you over the decades. To discover more or become a sponsor, click on the sponsorship link below this podcast. And now back to you, Jackie. You
2: know, okay. He said, uh, you know, you know, and uh, you know, so by, that was December 1975 and I'm on a plane and I'm, I'm, and and I'm in India and I'm, I've, uh, I'm living in this little, Ashram with uh, with a Hindu monk, you know, who's a bit of a bit of a fascist at heart himself, you know, but uh, you know, but within manageable levels, you know. Yeah, and uh, uh, and I stayed uh, there for three and a half years, four years with him.
1: How how did you feel about that environment, Maliki, when you first arrived in there? Obviously, presumably, it must have been an absolutely massive contrast to the other places you'd been up up until that point in your life. How did you
2: feel about well, that? I, well, I remember stepping off the plane, and the first uh, the, the first sensation uh, off the plane is, aside from the whole clutter of people, was the smell of mm. coal smoke, which reminded me of Belfast uh-huh. in the nineteen fifties, and uh, but this very intensely bright sunshine. Which was mm-hmm. much brighter than than we'd have known at home. Which mm-hmm. and I went back to India last year and that's bright sunshine is gone because of the pollution, though apparently it's coming back now because COVID is reducing the pollution. Uh-huh. But okay. and then I'm immediately surrounded by all these hawkers, you know, who are saying, Come with me, come with me, I know a nice hotel, you know. And mm. this um uh Indian guy who'd been that I'd been chatting to on the plane, he just mm-hmm. uh, said, Come with me, I'll look after you And okay. he uh, he he drove me to uh he first of all brought me to his home and gave mm-hmm. me a cup of tea and settled me down and then uh, drove me to the ashram mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I introduced myself to people there. Swamiji wasn't there at that time. He'd left, uh, okay. which is very careless of him. But but the <laughs> instructions were to take me to a house in Kamlanagar and I went to stay with this Indian family. And mm-hmm. then when Swamiji came back to Delhi, uh, i went to meet him and we went from there to a place called bridge guard which is on the ganges and mm-hmm. we he was staying in a hostel there which is called a Dharamshala, and uh-huh. um while he was building another ashram uh, mm-hmm. nearby so i lived that first winter in this little hostel called the teen bander ki Dharamshala. I had a mm-hmm. corner room in the courtyard and the uh, typewriter and foolscap paper do you remember foolscap paper
1: oh i do yeah i do yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: We, don't, we weren't using A4 paper, we were using foolscap <laughs> at that time. And, um, and, uh, and, and essentially basically I would sit with the Swami in the mornings and he would dictate mm-hmm. his book to me and I would help him with the grammar and the spelling and stuff. And then in the afternoon I would type it up and then okay. in the evening either go for a walk out along the Ganges or, uh, you know, and at first I was, Lonely and missing my girlfriend, you know, but, uh, mm-hmm. but I, and kind of, I, you know, I began to enjoy the solitude, enjoy the peace of it, uh, doing loads of reading. Mm. Uh, and then, uh, I got into meditation. I, I, he initiated me in the practice of meditation and hatha yoga. Mm-hmm. And I got very deeply involved in that, you know, and perhaps, probably too deeply involved in it. But mm-hmm. at least the thing over a period of three and a half years rounded itself off in that it starts off with me being seduced by this highly manipulative figure, Uh mm-hmm. then the kind of blissful period, and then the struggle where the tensions begin to arise, Yeah, like okay. in any relationship, and then breaking free from it. I think yes. if the thing had broken down before I had resolved in my head what was wrong with it. Then that mm. might have been difficult afterwards. That would have left me with problems. But actually, mm. I mean, I I had my, I had my seduction if you like while I was there, <laughs> and I had my 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 bust up, uh, with full conviction at at the mm-hmm. end. But mm-hmm. I had to learn quite. Uh, I had learned the the practice of meditation and yoga in some way, and uh, and I had been keeping diaries, so my own writing had developed quite well at that Mm -hmm. time and my own thinking about who I was. I think essentially it was a regression, you know. Uh I think it was a regression. I think, uh, you know, having come through a kind of confusing, over-disciplined education uh, and into the troubles and, uh, you know, not really finding my bearings in life. I think, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a three-year holiday beside the Ganges you know, it was just what I needed. You know, to to restore my spirit. You know, and yeah. I think that and that and that's that's what happened. I came back from there think- uh, a more confident, more adult person. Mm-hmm. But I did become think- a child while I was in it.
1: You know, ah, that's exactly the question I was not wanting to totally yeah. cut across to you, but yeah. the actual phrase yeah. that came into my mind, Maliki, was, "Do you think it was like regressing and bringing bringing what they like to term as the inner child back into balance, if you like." Absolutely. I do think that. I do think
2: that. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, if you had seen me walking along the, the Ganges, you know, with my uh, blissed out expression on my face, just totally, totally happy, you know, Mm -hmm. like a child with no worries. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that, you know, you would, you would have seen that. But, um, and the other side of it was that although this seemed to be a totally other world stepping out of what I had known, it actually was very close to a reproduction of what I had known. You know, yes, Hinduism yeah. is very like Catholicism, mm-hmm. you know. The Swami was the dictatorial father, the hard teacher, you know, mm-hmm. the charming yeah. some of the time and scary the next. Um, so in a sense, it uh, it was it was like replaying uh, a period that had been difficult and getting a better handle on how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So then I came away. And I mean, when I came away from it, I just turned up at the Sunday news one day uh to look for some work. And uh-huh. you know, the co- the kind of comment people made was you 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 know, you went away a boy and you've come back a man, you know. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you know. Which isn't to say that they didn't think I was completely nuts because of what I'd done. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know but uh and you know if you if a friend came to me now, say for instance a, a nephew or a niece came now and mm-hmm. said, Look out for this great opportunity to go to India to live with a Swami and help him write a book. And I've got a one way ticket, you know. I would say, are you out of your freaking head? You know, would you really do that? Well, I think I would, yeah. Yeah. Yeah? And then think about it as, think about it in another way. There were no phones then, there was no internet. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I was totally out of communication with everybody, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, I mean, I remember once having to make a phone call in India. And we had to go to the police station to ask if we could use their phone. And this wow. policeman was asleep in his underpants on his desk, you know. <laughs> okay. and, and, you know, I think we spent like half an hour trying to get a signal on the phone and give up, you know. Mm. Um, uh, so that degree of being cut off yeah. is not really available to anybody anymore anyway. No, you know? no, no,
1: they it's not. No. It anymore. Yeah. You, you said uh, about India, you said... I lived there for four years. It was a total escape, a space for regression, my own psychotherapy, like taking a reset on my thinking after years of the troubles mm-hmm. in Belfast and a period in England mm-hmm. with a sense of lost direction. Do you accredit that? I mean, you've you've kind of touched on, on some of that just now anyhow, but do you accredit that uh, to more so to Swamiji himself, or to the environment, or to the stage you're at, or was it kind of a mixing of those energies together, Lalaki? Mm,
2: good question. Um, I I think the, the actual practice of meditation was very important, but it mm-hmm. was important. See, the tension between Swamiji and me was: is meditation, a spiritual exercise understood within the Eastern tradition of communing mm-hmm. with the divine. Or is mm-hmm. it something that you try to understand within the Western psychological framework, you know? Uh-huh. And the reality yeah. is that while I was, while I was thinking that what I was doing was failing in my meditation when I wasn't kind of reaching a sense of connection with the divine and mm-hmm. discover, you know, what you're supposed to do is not think, keep your mm-hmm. mind I concentrated yeah. and, and, yeah. and But then your thoughts kind of ramble away, you know? But mm-hmm. that turns out to be the healthy part of it. That turns out to be the thing that um, uh, was psychotherapeutic. Because if you have got your mind fixed on something and then your thoughts are kind of working themselves out and, and mm-hmm. intruding, uh, you know, what happens in that process is that the thoughts that you don't want to think come up, you know, mm-hmm. the thoughts yeah. that would normally yeah. disturb you come up. And they don't disturb you so much because half of your mind is engaged on the, on the concentration on the, the object of meditation. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, so sometimes those thoughts would come back and surprise you and hurt you and sting and humiliate you, but then they would kind of, then they would, they would be neutralized within that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think, mm-hmm. uh, so I think there's a, I think there's a Western psychotherapeutic model for understanding what was happening in meditation, but that would be, You know, Swamiji would have seen that as failure of the meditation, whereas actually I think it was really quite, quite helpful. But I also Mm -hmm. then did go into further and deeper, uh, repression of thought and sensation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, for instance, I would discipline myself not normally if I'm walking around town doing something, I'm singing a wee song in my head. You know, that's what I (laughs) do. So I would, uh, when I was in in my, in my disciplined phase, I would just cut that off. I'd say, I would just say to myself, stop that, you know. Keep okay. the mind clean, Give That was uh-huh. part of it, and so what okay. you're doing is you're building up a huge pressure of repressed, uh, sensation and and thinking, you know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and that and that erupts, and 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 it did erupt, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, in something that, you know, well, if you if you have a kind of volcanic eruption or orgasm in your brain, then mm-hmm. you're you're going to think of that as a Hugely wonderful spiritual experience. But if you tell something about it, someone about it, they'll they'll think you've just had a nervous breakdown (laughs) and you might both be right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Okay. And another,
2: go on. You go ahead, Shwanki. No, go ahead. No, so I was left, I was left some years reevaluating the whole Indian experience and sifting it and, Mm -hmm. and trying to understand it. That's
1: all. And, okay, so that kind of connects with what I was going to interject Mm. with there, Maliki. One of the things that I felt from reading your writing and your experience in India was it did stand to you in terms of the courage that you've had to bring into uh, various situations that you've been in uh, as a writer over the years. Would you agree with that? Do you feel that that might be true? No, I don't make any claim to having courage. No, I don't feel (laughs) like... (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs>
1: <No>. <laughs> uh, okay you don't want to, to sort of say that you're courageous, but in terms no. of facing uh what are considered either to be strong or dangerous men as you've had to do in your line of work over the years, do you feel your time in India was supportive towards enabling you to do for you to do that
2: um maybe maybe a bit in that I think I have a uh, an Insight, not just from Swamiji, but from my father and some of my teachers, but how the, mm-hmm. the adamantly, determinedly right man thinks and feels, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I recognize him. I've met him before, you know, there's that. Um, but I, uh, I also were, uh, you know, I came out of India as a very kind of tender, person you know who had been celibate for four years by the way, you know apart from mm, okay. a, a minor lap and mm. uh and so uh, you know I had to find my way in interacting with women again because they were all four years older as well, you know, and okay. it's something to uh you know <laughs> well you know if you, you haven't had a girlfriend for four years and uh and the woman who is your age is twenty eight years old, you know when mm-hmm. the woman that you left. Was maybe twenty four? You know, yeah, yeah, you know, or, or, or younger still. You know, um, so so I was, I was displaced in terms of, of inter uh, relating to women. I mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was I was sexually enthusiastic. You know, I was ready for it, <laughs> uh, and I was and I was over eager for it, and that, and I and that at a time when there had been a huge cultural change in terms of the growth of feminism as well. You know, mm-hmm. so I had, you know, I had difficulty in relationships and I had, and I was cumbersome and I was, uh, uh, foolish and I was, uh, uh, you know, not, not, you know, well attuned, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, and in some ways, the, if you, if I look back to the most stressful times in the following years, it wasn't, um, it wasn't interactions with, with, with hard men or 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 whatever it was relationships it was the uh, foolish falling in love and mm-hmm. and break up you know i mean mm-hmm. uh, it was you know um and what i was i suppose doing was i was falling in love with women who were as maybe displaced and chaotic as myself you know kind of recognize you know one stray soul recognizing another you know mm-hmm. and uh, needing more from the other than each needing more from the other than the other could conceivably give, you know. So mm-hmm. very hungrily falling in love over and over again. You know? mm. And, and, and awful breakups and stuff, you know. Um, uh, before settling down into, you know, because that side of myself had been suspended in India, you know, mm-hmm. and it had never really matured before going to India, you know. Yeah. So I suppose yeah. when I, you know, so, uh, I mean, it had that long relationship in England, you know. Uh, yeah. which, you know, which had been a difficult one and, uh, you know, or at least had its difficulties. So that, mm-hmm. is that, is that still connected? Yeah. So, so yeah, essentially, are, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm 28 years old and mm-hmm. still not, not materially, physically a virgin, but, but still mm-hmm. essentially a, a beginner in terms of, yeah. uh, of, of knowing how to, uh, how to develop a relationship and, 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 uh, and, and maintain a relationship and be good for Mm -hmm. somebody in a relationship and let somebody be good for me.
0: As Jackie just couldn't stop asking questions, this interview has been split into a few episodes. Be sure to check out the next one. The link is below.